0: Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popovich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money.
1: I'm Faisal carmelli my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. How about you? Good. Well, you're you're got the you got the giddiness going yeah, on here. Well, that's right. You're I getting mean, excited. Yeah, I am. You're getting ready. I'm. Re- well, yeah, no, we're good to go. You're good to go. We're good to you're go. You're good to go. Yeah. Is she good to go? Oh, Maddie's. Terrified. Or she's gonna go. Maddie's terrified for sure. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Dave is getting married next week. Uh, we offer from the entire Pop Witch Carmelly Advisor Group, everybody at Chorus, want to say congratulations uh, on, on your on your day.
0: Yeah, thanks, man. It's going to be... Uh, looking forward to it. Lots of uh, you know families in town now. It's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it sh- it'll be a great time. I'm looking forward for the free alcohol, so it's
0: <laughs> good. It's an open bar except for Faisal and Andrew. Damn, no one yeah. told me that one. <laughs> <laughs> we got a pretty good show today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about how much... You're doing for your adult children financially. This is something that we, you know, uh, we get a lot of questions about from our client base, and so we know not just empirically but anecdotally, right? Help and support your kids uh, is becoming a bigger part of your retirement planning.
1: Yeah, and then what happens uh, to your economy in the next big recession? Uh, the C.D. Howe Institute is arguing that Canadians need to know mm-hmm. what the, the, plan the plan is. is? Yeah. And uh, we'll be chatting with them to find out what it it might look like and why it's so important to be prepared.
0: Okay, so let's leapfrog off that for a little bit because um, it was an interesting week in the markets today. I mean, Monday, we had markets closed. In Canada. Uh, In Canada, sorry. It was a long weekend for us, but not in the United States. (laughs) Right. And if you were paying attention on Monday, uh, certainly you heard about it on Tuesday, Mark, the Dow went crazy, right? The markets went crazy. Yep. yep. Uh, A ton of volatility. And we really had a lot of volatility all week as the markets were trying to figure out what's going on. But let's talk a little bit about what sort of drove that uncertainty and the volatility, because I don't think that's necessarily going to go away. We're going to have these bouts of sharp volatility um, because the the reasons for them, I think, are going to be persistent with us for a while. Let's start with the Fed for just a minute. Okay. I want your thoughts on this. I think that the Fed's language has been kind of sloppy in a couple of instances, and I'll take you back to fourth quarter of, of last year. So the market fall initially, that what precipitated the market fall in the fourth quarter was some sloppy language around the Fed guiding towards aggressive rate hikes this year, okay? And we get that fall, and then we had a recovery as they cleaned their language up. Well... We were expecting some language from the Fed that was a little bit more dovish, a little bit more um, accommodative, uh, accommodative, right? Yeah. From a um, from a monetary policy perspective, and didn't get that, right? Powell again didn't really deliver what the market was expecting in terms of the language, perhaps in the rate cut that he did. But then you saw a bunch of volatility again. Correct. Add to that sort of the complexity of the evolving relationship between. China and the United States, and there has been some developments there, which I think are interesting. And you get this environment of uncertainty, right? And, and markets are responding to that uncertainty. Yep. Your thoughts around sort of the evolution, what we saw um, with respect to China, the Chinese response to um, to what the you know the pressure that President Trump is putting on them from a trade perspective. Well, well
1: it was a very interesting move with them <laughs> changing around with their currency over yeah. the week. Um, what we have to remember is that the president of the United States and the Chinese government have two different time objectives. Mm -hmm. Totally. One has an objective to the next election in the United States. And the next election in China is, oh, never. So (laughs) they don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. It's true. And so they're in two different game plans. It's like when you're dealing with somebody who has time pressure of getting something done in an hour and you have all year. Right. How How do you have that conversation? And so what the market has done has turned individual investors, more so than institutional or large money investors, they've taken individual investors and had them bet or invest on hope. Right. They hope there's a trade deal. And if you watched every single headline or every tweet that came out from President Trump, that whenever there was a pro-trade or things are going to get better or there's movement towards some sort of, uh, of meeting, the market went up. Yep. Every time he mentioned anything negative, or the markets, or even China did something negative, even playing with the currency by one one one-hundredth of a cent caused the markets to gyrate. So they're hoping for some sort of solution, which is very challenging as an individual investor. How do you deal with that kind of stuff?
0: Yeah. And I think you you hit on something really interesting, the timelines (laughs) uh, and the long-term thinking. I mean, President Trump's got, let's call it a year, a little bit more than that, and president she's got you know lifetime um, but the currency thing was interesting um, because it's, it's it's showing an evolution in the Chinese response to this yeah. right so there's a psychological barrier or certainly was um, for every seven yuan to the US dollar and, and it fell below that the Chinese currency fell below that now what that triggered was concern in amongst investors that the Chinese may um, use their currency or weaponize their currency and allow it to devalue. So if you put a 25% tariff on uh, China mm-hmm. and their currency devalues by 25%, yep. I'm not saying it's going to, but the point is you can or offset Or some that.
1: number that will neutralize right. that effect.
0: Right, yeah. yeah. And, and so markets got concerned. Maybe we're not just in a trade war. Maybe it's a currency war too. Maybe it's a technology war. Add that.
1: Why don't we just say it's an economic war? Yeah. We've been talking about this now for a very long time. Right. We are no longer in the old Cold War situation. Right. We are now in an economic Cold War. Right. And, and back in the Cold War days when there was military, you would be, you built a nuclear weapon, I'll build a nuclear weapon. Right. You build this kind of arsenal, I'll build an arsenal. Right. And so we're just competing, but we're not fighting. Right. That's the same thing that's happening right now from an economic perspective. Yep. You put tariffs, I'll change my currency. I'll put tariffs to another country, they'll put tariffs on you. Yeah. Like it's, it's just a Cold War economically.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that you, people need to, and we'll talk about this um, maybe at, at the end of the show, in sure. the last segment, because what do you do about that? That, that yeah. it raises that question, right? And, and there are things that you can do, and, and how to respond to this, because emotionally it can be challenging. But, I, but we'll save that for the for the end of it, because I think this week. There's a bit of a shot across the bow. And and I think people need to understand there's a bunch of levers. Like we talk about this all the time. There's a, there's a whole bunch of levers, and then there's a whole bunch of unintended consequences of those levers. And so there's no crystal ball that you're you're working with, right? But you've got to have some base sort of base case assumptions around what's you know what's really happening here. And so I think we accept that there's an economic war taking place. Yep. Um, you know, we probably are in that economic war um, until the election. I don't think it gets easier before the election. I think President Trump's made it clear that that's part of his mandate. Yep. Right. He wants a, I'm tough on China policy.
1: Uh, and he'll continue with that rhetoric. Now, this show deals with a lot of people who are transitioning to or living in retirement. Right. Everything we just talked about heightens the sensitivity when someone is transitioning to or living in retirement. That's an excellent point. You ask anybody who was retiring in 2008 in the fall. Right. And had a different mindset of what the markets, what the world looked like right. from 2007 to the fall of 2008. Yep. And then a big crash. I'm not saying we're going to have a big crash. What I am saying is the sensitivity of what could happen to your retirement, to your financial picture of your future, is highly important at this point in time. Right. So we were going to wave the flag, say warning. I think at the, the last segment of the, of the show, we should talk about... What should people do as they prepare for retirement in this type of economic environment? environment?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's interesting. So, you know, what does all this mean? If we're talking about um, an escalation in the um, in the economic war, or you know, uh, uh, a worsening in the trade relationship, I was reporting on Friday um, a poll. So there's polls that are done regularly amongst economists, and yep. Bloomberg does them, and, and uh, Reuters does them. So there was a Reuters poll that was done on August 6th to 8th, um, and they were asking, amongst other things, to question about the probability of recession in the United States over the next two years. Yeah. It's a consistent question that they ask. And I can tell you that that uh, we're talking about the risks of increased consensus amongst that, that group is that the probability of a U.S. recession over the next two years has increased from 35% To 45%. Correct. Right? So, again, to your point, it's not a red flag at this particular point, but directionally, we're moving closer
1: to... By survey. By survey. By survey. You know when we find out that that the recession is actually going to happen? By data. When it's there. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. You don't know when the recession happens until you're in the recession. Because the definition of recession is two negative quarters of gross domestic product back to back. Back to back. That's right. And so you only find out you're in a recession six months after it's already started. Right.
0: But I think it's fair to say you're starting to see some of the, un- the uncertainty created by the trade environment, correct? not just with China and the US, but there's a bunch of issues going on, Japan and Korea and Canada and China. And I mean, it's it's all over the place. So the uncertainty of that is starting to play a role. And right? so
1: as you transition to retirement or you're living in retirement and go- knowing that we are on our way to a recession, mm-hmm. we don't know the exact date, right? but we're on our way there. How do you prepare for that? Yeah, that's okay. going to be interesting to
0: see. So let, let's talk about that. I mean, ultimately, um, we're going to have every month we have an educational session and we talk about bulletproofing your retirement because you're going to live through these things, right? If you have got a nice long healthy retirement, right? This is not the first or the last recession that you're going to see as you move through that.
1: Correct. And so we're going to talk about recession. We're going to talk about structuring your your investments, or we're going to talk about how you actually bulletproof your retirement. On Tuesday, August twentieth, seven p.m. at the Carriage House Inn. Now you need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400, That's nine six six eight four zero zero, or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. All
0: right, uh, stick around because we'll be chatting about how many uh, or how uh, people's retirements are being changed because they're helping their adult children in the and uh, on necessities. Yeah. Right. Not just frivolous, but on necessities. Um, you're on seven seventy chqr and more than money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on seven seventy chqr and more than money. Um, we're gonna be joined uh, shortly by Kelly Keene who's uh, a regular recurring guest on the show but she's an author personal finance uh, educator and consumer advocate for FP Canada. Uh, but before we invite uh, Kelly on Faisal the we're seeing a bigger and bigger trend right We've talked about this before where uh, parents are helping out their children more mm-hmm. and more but it's it's not just, uh, the big ticket items, like right? often it's for necessities, right? So this was an interesting statistic I saw. Okay. Uh, minimum wage earners in Vancouver. So if you're a young person starting out in Vancouver and you're, you know, you're hitting minimum wage, yeah, would need to work 112 hours a week for an average two bedroom, 112 hours a week. Okay. That's a lot of hours. Yeah. Is that possible?
1: That's three weeks out of every month just right. to pay rent.
0: Just to pay rent.
1: That means you have to live off of everything else off of one week. Of, of yeah. income yeah. at minimum wage. Yeah.
0: Getting difficult. In some areas- But are you have okay, two bedrooms.
1: I don't yeah. know why you need two bedrooms <laughs> as an individual. <laughs>
0: you got to rent one out. Right? That's so
1: you got to have somebody else in there. Why don't you share the cost? That's a different conversation. Yeah. We, can, we can go down that path. But the point that I think you're trying to make here is it, it's very costly, even in Calgary yep. and surrounding area. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. Minimum beginning. wage. And and I actually had a, a bit of a conversation with a couple of people online through my Facebook. Um, Saying that it should, you know, it should just be free market pricing, and then what about a living wage and all these different uh, topics that come up? At the end of the day, there are parents out there who say, "My adult child is having a tough time. I need to help out."
0: Right, or they're being asked to help out. Right, sometimes there's some pressure there. Kelly, welcome to the show.
2: Dave and Basil, great to be with you as always.
0: Well, we're always interested in your uh, in your research and the feedback that you've got, and I, I want to start maybe just at a high level and, and your, get your thoughts on how many Canadians um, are helping out their adult children financially.
2: Yeah, so FP Canada, we did a survey actually uh, a couple of years ago called Failure to Launch. I know I was on your show talking about it, <laughs> yep. about uh, millennial kids having a hard time uh, making it on their own, and... We did a follow up survey, but we also included um, the intent of helping your child buy their first home and also helping them out with rent. So let me unpack this a little bit. Uh, so a third of uh, parents either have or intend to help their children with rent. That was something we didn't look at in the last survey. But half of those with kids under 18. Uh, anticipate helping them buy their first home, and we can talk about the potential perils of that in a moment, but what what was also similar to our last survey, but the numbers were so much more this time, that the help that the parents were going to be giving to their adult children was going to cause them to delay retirement, delay paying off debt, and that it's an all- all-in-out financial strain helping their kids. So a lot of pressure on parents is if they don't have enough on their plate already, but helping adult kids survive out there um, is something that they're intending to do or actually doing.
1: We've pushed the timeline, haven't we? We, we, I remember back in the day when I was younger, my dad would say, I can't wait till you're 18 and you're on your own. There was a timeline of at age 18, either you're going to post-secondary education or you're going to get a job and be on your own. Right hasn't that timeline changed now like isn't shouldn't we move that to i don't know 30.
2: (laughs) Uh, i think some parents might (laughs) disagree some might agree (laughs) it is a really hot topic now in all fairness to younger folks coming out of the market uh dave and Faisal, i think we're kind of similar age uh in age and a lot of your listeners would agree that several decades ago, if you came out with a university degree, you had a very good chance of getting a decent paying job. You weren't saddled with ridiculous amounts of of student loan debt. I mean, my parents did not have money for me to go to university, so I still had to take out student loans. But today, I mean, university costs are soaring. Uh, Kids coming out don't necessarily get a job that is going to pay them what they had hoped. And... A lot of, you know, when we came out with this survey years, a couple of years ago, and I did interviews right across Canada talking to so many people, they were like, look, hey, as a baby boomer, I did well. Maybe they, you know, had some great equity in their home, and they wanted to help their kids. But here's where it becomes potentially problematic. There's a few things. Number one, in our survey, a lot of parents didn't know how they were going to help their kids. They said they were maybe going to dip into their equity. Um, We didn't ask if they were going to cash out investments or RSPs, but they really didn't know how they were going to help. So the first issue is, do you have a financial plan? Are you sitting down with someone like a certified financial planner to figure out if you can help? If you are going to help regardless if you can or not, what's the best way to do that? And then very lastly, here's where a lot of arguments and I had a lot of people tweeting uh, when we were doing the last survey was it's usually one sibling getting the help, not usually right across the board. Yeah. So how does that play out with inheritance? Um, if you are helping your adult child out, is it a gift? Is it a loan? What if, they get, what if they're in a relationship that you don't know how it's going to turn out? Maybe they're an entrepreneur and there is that possibility of bankruptcy how does that gift especially if it's a major one not just 50 bucks here and there how does that play out and does your adult child have a financial plan Uh, i think it's really fair to ask your adult child if they keep coming back to the bank of mom and dad you know what's your budget what's your financial plan do you have a plan and and then very lastly guys if you as you know we talked about this during the last survey if you are intending on helping your child purchase a home because maybe as a dream, uh, you know, the baby boomer's dream was to have a home. Um, Are you setting them up for failure? Mm -hmm. Is Is that down payment just a minimum getting them into the market? They don't have the emergency plan. They don't have enough for property taxes, maintenance. So this is where that larger financial conversation, I think, needs to happen, as opposed to these gifts being perhaps haphazard.
1: I've got two comments. One was the conversation about if I'm giving money to one child, do I give money to all my children? How does that impact my future, my estate plan? How are these gifts or loans or what have you? One thing that Dave, you and I talk about to our clients mm-hmm. is um, equal is not fair, and fair is not equal. Yeah, right. And so you can you can right. treat your 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 children differently to be fair, but it may not be equal. And, and, and that's something that, that goes to a value system. What do you value as individual? And I think people who are transitioning to or living in retirement are still trying to figure out what they value.
0: Right. It doesn't mean that that doesn't impact the family dynamic, Like right? You need to For be sure. conscious of that and cognizant of what impact it may have. But For sure. your comment is exactly right. And so then it often, Kelly, and you can opine on this as well, but um, if if equal... Uh, doesn't mean fair and fair equal, and we do something differently, then you've got to have a plan in place to make sure that it doesn't, at the end of the day, that gift And create, communicate that part. Yeah, and communicate it and create a problem. Yeah, so
1: communication is key with the family. I think yeah. one, one other point that I wanted to make was there's a lot of parents out there who are buying or putting money towards their kids so they can have a home or have a lifestyle because it's a reflection of their as a, them as a parent. It is not a reflection of what the child's best interests are. And so if my kid has a home, then I'm a successful parent because I taught that person how to have a home. Right. All the things that we consider to be successful in society, it looks bad on me if my kid's struggling. It looks bad on me if my kid can't make ends meet. It looks bad on me if my kid doesn't have the stuff that I had when I was his or her age. And that's an impact on people have to kind of do some self-check, look in the mirror and say, what's really important here? Right.
0: Yeah. Kelly, um, gonna say a couple of minutes or so. So if you're in this position, you're thinking about this, or maybe you're getting pressure from the kids to do this, um, walk us through this. How, what do we do?
2: Yeah. And, and, and I like what you were saying, Faisal, how there's that pressure for the parents. But what's interesting, what you said was how they used to live or And I don't think, I think baby boomers forgot how they used to live, because I think when they were starting out, especially a lot that I talked to, they were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to um, have the roommate and, uh, you know, work the two jobs and all that. And they've kind of forgotten that now that they have that success. And like you said, maybe there's that judgment on their kids looking successful, but... I mean, in what universe is a 30-year-old supposed to have it all made? Supposed to have a house, supposed to still be able to tick off the bucket list, yeah. you know, uh, entertain, have all of the fun and everything. Baby boomers, as far as I know, did not have all of that, right? They sacrificed for their home. And then your older listeners listening, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if it was a few decades ago and we were in double-digit double-digit interest rate environments, right? right. Because it just wouldn't have been the conversation. So, I mean, I hate to harp on it, but there's nothing that you can do other than start with that financial plan. And it goes on both sides. And that's what's also going to open up the conversation, the family conversation. And as both of you said, um, you know, and you know because you're both in practice, that if those conversations are not had, and I love that fair but not equal kind of thing that you just talked about, you know that a lot of times the first time the family conversation happens is when mom or dad dies,
0: yeah. Yeah.
2: and that is not the time to have it happen. So, again, a lot of parents, a lot of families cannot have this conversation without it being a big fight. I think that's where you have to have the independent third party come in, kind of calm things down, crunch numbers, even figure out if mom and dad can help. And sometimes, too, that is a big relief to mom and dad, to be like, look, you guys really can't. You you don't have enough to help, and having the having someone help them have the hard conversation with the kids that look, maybe it's not in your best interest to um, get that down payment or what have you. So. Um, I, I really think that you need to have that, that financial coach on your side and have that roadmap to even figure out what you're talking about before. And really, the big takeaway is don't just give to the kids haphazardly. Yeah. Have a plan. Yeah. Figure out if it's a gift or a loan um, and, and uh, you know, have that roadmap for both of you.
0: We have to leave it there, Kelly. Thanks, as, as always. Thanks for your input. Thanks, gentlemen. Been joined by Kelly Keene, author, personal finance educator, and consumer advocate for FP Canada. Uh, we've got a seminar coming up. We're going to talk about how to do these plan, like how to plan for this kind y- of
1: stuff. Yeah, these are the unexpected, yeah. extraordinary expenses that could impact your retirement. How do you have a strategy or a structure to make sure you can cover those issues? And we're going to talk about how you bulletproof your retirement on Tuesday, August twentieth, seven p.m. at the Carriage House Inn. You need to reserve your seats. So give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or go on our website to register at morethanmoneyradio.com. You want
0: to know what the plan is for the next big recession? Stick around after the break. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and more than money. Lots of fear in the marketplace um, that we're moving closer to recession. Yes. And with people that are planning to retire or living in retirement, that even gets scarier than 25 years ago when you were working and had a paycheck coming
1: in. Yeah, and the fear is when you're living in retirement or going to be living in retirement that you're dependent on your savings, which basically means you're dependent on the stock market to reach the lifestyle that you want. Right. And that's the fear. Every time the market goes down, that's years of income away. Right. Every time the market goes up, you feel a bit better. Um, And so you're dependent purely 100% on the stock market pretty much and so when you go into a recession, people think stock market crashes and so forth. Right. How is this going to impact my, my lifestyle in the future? And there
0: are some mechanisms that um, that central banks have, as an example, governments can use in order to help minimize the impact and get the economy stimulated again. But we're coming into a time where interest rates are at all-time lows. And it's it's challenging to think about the traditional tools that, say, the Bank of Canada used in the past to help yep. us overcome, say, the 008 Crisis. Yep. Given that you know the uh, the longer term rate was four and a half percent, and we're sitting now at you know one point two percent. What do we do? Are, are the same tools? Is is it the same playbook that the Bank of Canada is going to going to be able to use or draw upon in order to you know to re stimulate and re uh, get the economy moving forward yep. again? Um, professor Martin Neichenbaum is going to be joining us uh, in just a moment. He's a professor of economics, a Canadian boy, but professor of economics at Northwestern University. Um, Marty, welcome to the show. First of all.
3: Hi, welcome, thank you very much.
0: So let's uh, let's tackle this, uh, some of the traditional tools um, that say the Bank of Canada has used in past may not necessarily be available to them, certainly in the same way that were available in the past. So maybe you can address with us how the Bank of Canada has traditionally combated recessionary periods.
3: Sure, uh, the traditional uh, policy has been that if you think we're going into a recessionary, you're in a deep recession, you cut short-term interest rates, right? right? And there's a lot of mechanical ways to do that. And they try and cut them to boost uh, demand, you know, for cars, for houses, all the traditional things that people borrow for. Um, And they sort of do this seesaw, right? Then when inflation gets too high and output gets too high, they do the opposite. But the key thing is when there's a recession, traditionally the Bank of Canada, other central banks, lower those short-term interest rates.
0: Okay, so we're in an environment where both short and long-term interest rates are certainly a lot lower than what they were when we faced the last great recession. So, have things yep. changed?
3: Yeah, very much so. Um, I think most central banks don't believe that the traditional tools that they had are viable. So, when you know, if you think about how much, on average, say the Americans cut interest rates in a typical recession, it was about five percentage points. Right. So the Canadians maybe a tad less. Well, if we're starting from 1.75%, you're not going to have five percentage points to cut, right? Because no one thinks that we can make interest rates negative, that is to say, to make people pay for putting their money in the bank. So once you hit zero, it's really tough to go any lower. So that traditional tool is just off the table once you hit zero, roughly speaking.
1: So it's happening in Europe, though. So so Marty, it's happening in Europe. They're seeing negative interest rates not only with the European Union but also yep. in some peripheral areas as well. So they're they're absolutely. actually making it lower. Japan's done it as well where they've made it even lower. Yeah, you could you you can make interest rates a little bit lower than zero. So yep. I mean
3: you're absolutely right. There's no You can't go negative five is what percent. you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that's all I'm saying. There's nothing magic about zero, but you know, it's really hard to imagine that that consumers are gonna pay three and a half percent. To park their money in banks. Yeah. Uh, there's just going to be alternatives that, that, that evolve and it would be really bad for the financial institutions as well. Yeah, so cool. nobody's excited about that prospect.
1: So what can they do? So here's what they tried to do
3: last time and you know with some degrees of success. So instead of trying to push short-term rates down, they can try and buy bonds, mortgage-backed securities that are longer term in nature, That have higher interest rates to start with it didn't hit zero. So it's right that, you know, short term interest rates hit zero, but mortgage rates were still positive. It's right that short term interest rates were zero, but corporations were still paying, you know, for long term debt, at least in the last time around, they were paying positive interest rates. So what Bernanke said said, Well, heck, why don't I buy those things? Right. I'll push the those the price of those things up and the yields on those down and that's what they did and that's you know called quantitative easing but every you know the ECB, uh, the Fed and the Bank of Canada has that option of going into the market and just buying uh, bonds of corporations and, and mortgages now whether they do that or not is is up in the air.
0: You know it, it, it's interesting I'm I'm even going to challenge the long term. Um, uh rate assumptions here because in Denmark just this week there were uh there were banks offering thirty year mortgages at point five percent a twenty year mortgage at zero and if memory serves me correct they had a ten year mortgage rate at negative point five percent they were gonna pay you to take a mortgage.
2: Wow.
3: Well this goes back to your previous comment about short term interest rates. Again there's nothing magic about zero. Yeah. And what you're really saying is long-term rates are really low now. Yeah. You know, in Canada, they're not zero. Uh, So you can push them down, but how much can you push them down, and will that be enough? That's a real challenge.
1: Yeah, we've got a couple of minutes left before we have to go to commercial break, but um, we've been talking about the one side of the equation, which is what the central bankers can do, which is monetary policy. Yeah. Is this yep. a solution going forward, a monetary policy issue? Or do we actually have to have the government step up and do something about this yeah. and actually fiscal create policy, yeah. create fiscal policy to stimulate the economy? We're talking about a fiscal stimulus. And, and most of us think yep. fis- fiscal stimulus means increasing debt and 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 not getting any benefit out of that. But is there, other, is there another solution besides I'm quantitative easing so, far? so
3: Yep. So I've, I've you know, written about that. I'm committed to that. And my view is, Yes, absolutely. And what better time could there be to invest in people and infrastructure, uh, maybe pipelines, you know, yeah. for the Alberta <laughs> audience, and then when you can borrow at such low rates, why wouldn't you do it exactly when you need to boost the economy? So I think it's very important for the uh, for people to be realistic about the limits of monetary policy and to focus their attention on fiscal and make sure that we do it in the right way.
1: Now, of course, politics oh, yeah, gets totally in the way yeah, politics gets in yep. the way of that, Marty. But, <laughs> but, so yep. as, as a Canadian in the United States talking about Canada, now you have a chance to speak to our federal government here. What would you tell them to do in Canada? Because we want to kind of disassociate ourselves from the cyclical nature we have with dealing with the United States. We want to be somewhat more independent economically. How do we do that going forward? Your, your, your advice to our prime minister here?
3: Um, I, you know, the truth is, Uh, location 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 Canada is never going to (laughs) be independent of the US cycle so we have to be realistic about the deck of cards that we've been dealt with and we need to really go back to previous solution Um, it's true that politicians can sometimes not be perfect on fiscal policy but I don't think that's that's a reason for us to give up on that it seems to me Canadians have to insist to their politicians to be realistic that's one of the things we vote on right uh, there, there are interesting possibilities. So things like we could mandate by law that when unemployment gets too high, unemployment benefits automatically kick in at even higher levels than they do now. Right? That sort of discretionary unemployment policy, a uh, fiscal policy. So there are a lot of creative ideas about fiscal policy. But the truth is, the the notion that Canada is going to get divorced from the United States cycle, it's not going to happen. Very optimistic. It's just you know it's yeah. I just don't see how how you do that unless we move. And we're not going to
0: move. And yeah. we're not going to move. Okay, we've got to leave it there. I want to thank you very much for your time today, Marty. My pleasure. We've been joined- good luck. Bye-bye. You bet. We've been joined by Professor Martin Eichenbaum, Professor of Economics at Northwestern University, although down in the United States, a good Canadian boy. And I think that's, you know, it, it, it's interesting. It's going to take a collective effort. And we've heard central banks for a long time now, and we're talking years, yep. um, being vocal about, we need fiscal policy. We need some help here. It can't. We've all been fall saying on that us.
1: since 2008. Yeah, this is not new. Right. This has been happening since 2008. So knowing that this is going to happen or not happen, it impacts people's retirements. It impacts people's portfolios. So how do you structure yourself to bulletproof your retirement? Yeah. Let's educate people. We're going to educate you on our seminar, August 20th, 7 p.m. at the Carriage House Inn. You need to reserve your seats. So give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or you can register online at morethemoneyradio.com
0: Okay, stick around after the break, and we're going to talk about how best to handle your uh, portfolio in an extremely volatile environment. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Okay, I'm going to pause. Or sorry, I'm going to throw a question at you. You got three choices here on how the heck you're going to position yourself and you're going to handle the volatility. How you're going to respond to it? You're
1: okay? talking about the market volatility. Market happening. volatility. Got you. Okay.
0: So when it creates, mar- when we have market volatility, you can be, uh, you can be a market timer. Okay. Okay. Your strategy can be driven based on the data, the economic data. Okay. Or the tea leaves. Crystal ball. (laughs) Right. Roll the dice. All right. Let's take that. I think uh, so. I'm being a bit facetious, but you know, it's interesting. The conversation I do want to have is how do you manage through this when you get daily, when you can have extreme bouts of volatility that scare the bejesus out of you, right? Nobody's not affected when you get thousand point moves uh, on, you know, the Dow or whatever index it is. But what do you do, right? How do you interpret that move? You do emotionally and say okay uh, so not even emotionally i'm going to try to market time so i'm going to be cash or stocks right so i'm going to in be, or out. i'm going to be out the day it drops a thousand i'm going to be in at the bottom of a thousand and that's why i'm going to that's why i'm going to protect myself and make money
1: or get out before so i think when people try to cash in their chips or sell their stock portfolio right. they're basically saying i'm worried it's going to go down even more so i'm going to preserve what i have Knowing what I have is better than gambling the fact that it could go lower tomorrow or the month after or the year after mm-hmm. that. Yep. And so that's why we see people capitulate and they sell. Right. Right. But, it's
0: so, but let's go back. So let's not talk about capitulation for a second. Let's talk about the market timer.
1: So right. The mar- so the
0: market timer has to have the foresight to sell at the highs. Do you think? And they, the Constitution to buy at the lows. Do loads? you
1: think our average listener on this show is a market timer or is purely focusing on a reaction to what's happened in the market?
0: Yeah, I think it's an emotional reaction. They're not
1: making a decision to get in and get out based upon some sort of fact. No, correct. Now, correct. And when I mean by fact, I mean data. Right. They're basing it upon the gyration of the market and how they feel about it, and that's their reaction. So why didn't I sell when the market was down 1,000 points on the Dow? Why didn't I get in before it went back up 1,000 points? That's a fear and greed conversation, which is emotionally driven. Well, it's a hindsight emotional
0: response, right? The emotional response happens when it, when it happens. But in hindsight, then it's, why, if I, if I would have done this at this time and not at that time. The question is, can you figure out what those timing are, right? Can, is, is there some effective way to know when the peaks and troughs are going to be? Because that's what you have to satisfy, right? You have to have a methodology, a process that can do that. If you're if you're going to be a market timer. So my personal belief is that you can't do that consistently. Some sometimes some people can get lucky. I
1: think any but you can't do that. Any investor, regardless if you're using an advisor, buying a mutual fund, or doing it yourself, right. has to have some sort of process. If you are purely building a portfolio mm. for yourself mm-hmm. without any process. Mm. And the process can't be, I saw this tip on TV. My Uber driver told me this stock. Like you can't have that as your process. Yeah. There has to be a process that you do to buy. More importantly, a process of what causes you to sell. Yeah. When you have that, then you're, you're disassociating the emotion from the fact. So when right. you say, are you data-driven or are you... Are you market timing or are you looking at the tea leaves? If you just buy for the sake of buying without a process, Mm -hmm. you're betting on tea leaves. You're hoping you roll the dice and it worked out. You're investing in hope. If you are market timing, you have a process still. We know lots of people who try to time the market and they do it okay. They're batting 50, 60% and they're comfortable with their process. If you look at data-driven money managers, oh, I don't know, Warren Buffett as an example, He'll tell you it's based upon certain theses that he has on the data that's provided to him.
0: Yeah, and the the fundamentals of the companies he's investing in. It's 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 all data-driven. Data, exactly. And it's
1: so difficult as an individual in this country to have a set of data that you just follow and not be distracted by the noise outside of that data. Right. Every time we turn on the TV, every time we turn on the radio, every time I, I turn on my phone... There's a distraction. Do this. Don't do that. Buy this. Don't buy that. How do you stay focused? It's 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 kind of like me going through my diet and walking through McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's all the time and saying, "I'm good. I'm not <laughs> going to cheat on my meal at all." It's almost impossible. It's impossible unless I have somebody beside me pulling me, which is usually you, grabbing by my ear and saying, "That's fatty foods for you, Faisal. Get ahead, Get get away from that stuff." Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it's it's interesting. I mean, if there could be listeners out there saying a couple of industry guys justifying why they can't you know protect me on the downside and. I think we have, to, we have to address the reality of what it is from an industry perspective, right? Because the, the discipline that you have, if you're working with an advisor, understand that discipline because each discipline has the good, the bad, and the ugly mm-hmm. attached to it. If you're a do-it-yourselfer, what's your discipline that you execute on without emotion, right? And I would say to you, it doesn't matter to me which discipline you pick uh, nothing's perfect. Just have one. You have to stick to it through the good, the bad, and the ugly because Correct. you need a full cycle to get through it. Correct. Right? So um, I, I stated. For the record, that I, I don't think market timing can be done effectively, right? right? We have worked with technical programs. We've done a lot of stuff. Maybe it's just us. We can't, but I'm saying we no can't one, do it.
1: No one has been at right. the top of the game in regards to performance being a market timer. Right.
0: But if you're a market timer, then you better have that discipline and stick to it. And whatever criteria you're using Correct. in order to get in and out, stick to it without fail. So
1: now the, the the thing is, this is a good time, especially with this week and how the markets went. Right to do a gut check. If you're working with an advisor, sit down with that advisor and say, what's your up and down thesis? What can happen up and down? How do you handle this stuff? What do you believe? What's your philosophy? Because if the advisor says, you gotta write it out through seven to 10 years, because that's the normal cycle, you better be comfortable with that.
0: Right, right. And so I did have a conversation with a client last week, um, and that was the conversation, right? So here's the strategy in place, are you guys still comfortable with this strategy? Yes, we are. I said, here are some of the risks that you know we're marching towards, you know, some problems here.. Yep. Are you okay with that? Yes, we understand that. Okay. In the event that these problems materialize, this is what I anticipate happens to this particular portfolio on the downside, on the downside. And can are you comfortable then we ride it out? I don't know how long it will take, but we ride it, we have to ride this out. And having that conversation causes pause. Right. Hmm. Let's think about that. Right. Let's put the numbers up on the whiteboard. That's the thing. Right. Put the numbers. Everybody Not talks just percent. percentage. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. There Let's talk dollars in you know, real dollar impact in a portfolio. Because if
1: someone says can you take a ten percent drop? Yep. Right. But if you have a million dollars and you take a hundred thousand dollar hit, ooh it's different. It feels completely different feels knowing a hundred thousand versus ten percent.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, listen, our our bias is data driven. We we just follow that's, the That's economics. our philosophy, that's yeah, our strategy that's our and it's philosophy. Been proven yeah. to work over time. Yeah, and, and that doesn't mean that if things go down that you're fully protected. Of course it, it you know we our process can't protect our growth bucket okay from no drop in the equity markets yeah. right our income bucket doesn't have exposure to the equity markets and it behaves very differently Which right so why we have it so yeah. structure becomes important too so Paramount. if yeah if you accept as we do you can't be you can't be market timing with any kind of of accuracy and consistency yeah. then you need structure and process to protect against it
1: i need everybody to hear this one piece if you're investing in the stock market you cannot assume that you will have zero downside risk and all the upside. Right. Once you understand that stocks can go down, now the question comes to you, how much down can you accept? Mm-hmm. What's your tolerance for the downside? And I can tell you, back in 2008, when the S&P 500 fell 50% plus, mm-hmm. if you can't handle that, don't put all your money in the S&P 500. Right. It's been
0: a fun ride up. But you can handle
1: turns. the the 50-60 up. No, everybody can. Everybody likes that. But nobody can handle, or most people can't handle the 50% down. Right. And if you cannot, then you start to chip away money from that pool yeah. and put it in other places that will protect you when the 50% hit happens. Right. Those are black swan events. Right. We've been talking about black swan because it could happen again. How do you protect yourself in those issues? Because that can destroy your retirement. Didn't we
0: talk about that last week? Planning
1: for the unplannable. Correct. My new, see? Your new words. Yeah. Three
0: words I've used, un- three times I've used unplannable. It will be a new word in <laughs> the Oxford Dictionary in the not too distant future. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. All right, let's go.
0: Um, sure. Okay. Uh, let's talk about, um, we got to wrap this up. So let's talk about our upcoming seminar. Yeah.
1: These are the things in regards to how you have structure in your portfolio will profit and protect through every cycle. And be able to bulletproof your retirement because we're going to show you the math behind this and how to live the lifestyle you want. We're talking about this on August 20th 7 p.m. at the Carriage House Inn. You need to reserve your seats, so give us a call at 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com.
0: And just a quick reminder that with this volatility, seats are filling up fast. So please give us a call early. We would love to uh, to show you what we think the the risks and the opportunities and the structure is that helps people get through this. So we look forward to seeing you. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR.